Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 188 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kristen Lyons. She's a director of rehab services at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, where she has also been a practicing SLP for over seven years. Her research interests include rehabilitation for patients with posterior fossa syndrome, and comprehensive management of swallowing disorders in childhood cancer patients and survivors. She is passionate about mentorship, developing content for a variety of childhood cancer resources, and sharing current applicable information for SLPs to use in their clinical practice. Kristen obtained her undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and now resides in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. This episode is sponsored by the Medical SLP Collective providing mentorship and evidence-based resources using our proprietary peer review process for SLPs working in the medical world. You can find us to sign up at www.medslpcollective.com. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Kristen. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to be here with you, to meet you, and to chat about pediatric oncology. This is really exciting. Yes. Yes, it is exciting. It's not an exciting topic, but I'm excited that you're here to talk about it because I think there's such such a need for us to learn more about these different areas. And, you know, so many SLPs or so many medical SLPs are kind of wanting to figure out what their niche is, you know, where they belong in certain settings. And I think this is, this is going to be a great talk. So I'm really excited. So, and I want to thank you because Kristen reached out to me on Instagram and it was like, 
I would love to talk about this on the podcast. I don't know if we can. And I was like, yes, of course. So if anybody out there has a great topic to talk about, please feel free to reach out. I can only think of so many topics and I don't know what all the cool things you guys all do out there. So thank you for that, Kristen. <laughs> so tell the, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay. So I'm Kristen Lyons. I am the Director of Rehabilitation Services at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, um, where I'm also a practicing SLP. Um, so as an SLP, I'm working with infants, children, um, adolescents, young adults with cancer and other catastrophic diseases. And then as the Director of Rehab, I get to support our team of speech language pathologists, audiologists, physical therapists, and occupational therapist. So I get to dabble a little bit in administration, a little bit in patient care. Um, I absolutely love what I do. Um, as you were saying, it's, you know, a bit of a niche, but I think hopefully um, with today's conversation, people will get a little insight into what we do and how, you know, it's important about childhood cancer, regardless of the setting that you're yeah. working in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you wear a million hats, which might be a whole nother conversation in and of itself, Chris. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all that because I, I get you know messages all the time from people like, can SLPs do this? Can they do that? SLPs can do anything you want to put your little heart into. So yes, you yeah. can. <laughs> all right. So where should where should we get started, Kristen? So I want to talk a little bit about the current state of childhood cancer. Um, um, I guess before that, I do want to say. You know, I'm not one to proclaim myself as an ex and as an expert in you know anything other than my own lived experiences. Um, so I do have a lot of experience with rehabilitation and cancer, but I'm constantly learning more and trying to do better. And I think we can really help each other. So I'm hopeful that this conversation will you know spark more conversation. I enjoy sharing what I know, but I love learning from others. So um, I'd love to hear from others about this topic as well, so that we can keep this conversation going. Childhood cancer, you know, I want to give a little bit of information about cancer statistics, but I don't want to dwell too long because they're not the most fun thing to talk about, um, but they're really important. And I think they really set the stage for um, why we need to be talking about childhood cancer, regardless of the setting that we're working in as an SLP. So according to the American Childhood Cancer Organization, um, cancer is actually the leading cause of death by disease in children in the United States. Approximately 15,000, almost 60,000 children ages 0 to 19 will be diagnosed with cancer in 2021 um, in the United States. And most of the time, this diagnosis is leukemia or a central nervous system tumor, like a brain tumor. And unfortunately, one in five of these diagnoses will not survive. The global statistics are actually and worse, there's around 400,000 children across the world who will be diagnosed with cancer this year with less than 50% of those children surviving. Um, and I think we can all agree that those are some devastate, devastating statistics, but I'm going to focus a little bit more on um, cancer survivorship as well. So we don't receive a lot of funding in the United States for childhood cancer. It's actually about 4% of all government funding for cancer wow. research goes to childhood cancer. Wow. Which means we're trying to do a lot with very little, but I think pediatric oncology um, doctors and nurses and clinicians are some of the scrappiest humans I know. Um, <laughs> and despite the progress really is being made. And so um, there's kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel. So we talk about these ter terrible statistics, but true childhood cancer is improving. So when you want to think about the statistic of one in five children are not surviving their cancer in America, that means four in five are. 
American Cancer Society tells us that about 83% of children and adolescents with cancer will survive at least five years. And so we have to consider not only um, how do we develop and improve treatments that result in more cancer survivors, but we have to think about what it looks like to be a survivor of childhood cancer. So how do we help these children as they get back to school, as they enter the workforce, as they navigate human relationships, um, as they eat and they drink and they communicate and they interact for the rest of their lives. Um, and so I think talking about survivorship is really important because I might work in a really niche area where I'm seeing these patients who are on cancer treatment, but you, all of the listeners, might have these, these patients on your caseloads after their cancer treatment. And there's some really important things to consider um, when working with this patient. So I think a really nice um, statistic from the National Cancer Institute um, is that in 2018, there were actually about half a million survivors of childhood cancer living in the United States which that's a big number, you know, you're going to run across these, these patients, but survivorship does come at a cost. The treatments that we use to slow and stop and cure cancer are also sometimes the things that cause other long-term health complications. So heart problems and lung problems and cognitive late effects and person dysphagia or a secondary cancer that requires more treatment. Um, so this is why I'm on a mission to share about childhood cancer and the role that the SLP plays in the care of the patients and their survivors. Because I think, you know, as survival rates continue to improve, these patients are going home and going back to living their life and they could end up on your kid. Um, so I think it's important to talk about it and think about how we can really serve this population. All right. Now, what do we do in this setting? So like we were talking about, some of the deficits that warrant the involvement of the SLP stem from the actual cancer, and then other deficits um, that necessitate SLP involvement are actually a result of cancer treatment. So there's several ways to treat cancer in children and adolescents, you know, surgery to remove a tumor, chemotherapy, radiation, bone marrow transplant. Um, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, so if we're thinking about it from a speech therapy perspective, maybe a patient has a brain tumor and it's not really causing any speech or swallowing issues at diagnosis, but then they have a tumor resection and there was some cranial nerve injury during the resection. And so now we've got some facial weakness or some vocal cord paralysis. So the surgery can cause some speech therapy issues. Um, and then chemotherapy and radiation, whole list of things that they can cause that would um, warrant SLP involvement, you know, oral thrush, mucositis, xerostomia, Dysphagia is a big one. Trismus is a big one. Chemotherapy, chemotherapy can alter taste, so reduce PO intake and need for nutritional support because of chemotherapy side effects. And then as a pediatric oncology SLP, I'm treating everything that y'all are treating. Uh, dysarthria, apraxia, aphasia, dysphagia, feeding difficulty, voice. You know, kids are on, have trachs, they're on vents. Um, we're using speaking valves. We're working on executive functioning and memory. It's really the full range um, of our scope of practice, which is really neat to work on those types of things. I would say um, there are some challenges to working in pediatric oncology. Um, I think really anybody who works in pediatrics knows that it's extremely rewarding, but it's challenging. It can require a lot of creativity to tackle the deficits in young children. Um, and my peds SLPs know what I'm talking about. Um, Teresa, as a fees provider, I'm curious if you've had a lot of experience 
scoping young children and what that's like for you. Yeah, no, I've scoped a few kids, like maybe like teenage-ish, I think like 12, 13, a few that age, but not young, young. I did actually scope my own son when he was four months old. So he was a itty bitty, bitty baby. But other than that, no, but I, I think, you know, I guess how, how big are teenagers as opposed to to younger kids? And I don't know what, you know, you guys consider a younger kid, but you know, I think we have, you know, the nice pediatric scopes, which can be, you know, do, do you guys use that? So we're building a fees program currently. EOTs um, yeah. will use pediatric scopes and we'll assist with those. Um, but yeah. it can just be really challenging to get a four-year-old to sit there and tolerate yeah. it. Yeah. They yeah. don't get information in the study. So that right. can be difficult. Right. Um, in the population. You know, the same that other pediatric therapists are struggling with, you know, there's not a great dysarthria assessment for children. How do we how do we evaluate or how do we implement compensatory strategies with a two year old? You know, it's just really tough to you know, and those are things that we have to consider in this population. But that's kind of pediatric wide. You know, everybody in peds is dealing with that. Um, there's a couple of things that are a little bit more pediatric oncology specific, and I think one of the big ones, you know, outside of nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy or, you know, these prolonged hospitalizations that they might have or, you know, reduced social interactions with peers. One thing that I think is important to think of is this concept called cancer fatigue. Um, cancer fatigue is not something that you only find in children and adults are also very affected by it. Um, but it's something really important to think about when you're working in oncology um, so cancer fatigue is fatigue that doesn't get better with rest or with sleep. It's more than just being tired from normal activity. So I'm an adult. I'm tired all the time. I think that's part of being adult, right? Cancer fatigue is, it's more than that. It's my tired is nowhere near the level of tired that these cancer patients are feeling. And it can really impact their ability to participate in their daily activities, their ability to participate in therapy. And it can be pretty distressing to the patient. So sometimes that means we have to scale back what we're doing or reevaluate what our goals are for the, you know, the future while we're dealing with this cancer fatigue. And it can actually um, persist for a long time after cancer treatment as well. Um, so that's just something to be aware of in the pediatric oncology um, or just the oncology population because adults will experience cancer fatigue as well. One of the things I definitely wanted to talk about in the special considerations in pediatric oncology. So what are some of the unique assets that you might encounter as a speech language pathologist? We've talked a little bit about chemotherapy and, you know, it's frequently used to treat cancer, but it has many side effects, mucositis, nausea and vomiting, reduced PO intake, need for nutritional support. Can be really challenging for children to eat during chemotherapy because of the taste and smell changes that they're experiencing combined with and the illness. But it's also important as a speech pathologist to know some chemotherapy drugs are ototoxic, meaning they can cause hearing loss. Um, and so this is really important for children who are um, losing their hearing as they're learning their sounds. Yeah, yeah. One drug known for ototoxicity is cisplatin. Um, and that usually causes bilateral high-frequency hearing loss. It is generally permanent, not reversible. Um, some adults experience hearing loss with cisplatin as well, but it's more likely to occur in children. Um, so that's something to be aware of. You know, we're trying to monitor, okay, are you 
how is your speech sound acquisition um, during your cancer treatment? We're monitoring your hearing, um, working really closely with audiology for that. Yeah. Um, another chemotherapy drug that I like to let people know about is vincristine. Vincristine can cause per- peripheropathy, so that might manifest as numbness or tingle- tingling, um, neuropath pain in the extremities. It can cause heel cord issues or drops. So a lot of times these physical therapists are with patients who have peripheral neuropathy um, after dosing of vincristine. But interestingly, vincristine can also cause vocal cord paresis or paralysis. Um, and so that might result in dysphagia, voice changes, stridor, respiratory distress. And it's really interesting because say a patient who receives vincristine and they could have some vocal cord issues that occur within a few days of the dose, or um, they could have what we call a cumulative of dose effect, which means that after multiple doses, then they start having of vocal cord dysfunction. A lot of the times caregivers or nursing staff are the ones that are noticing onset dysphagia, coughing with liquids, or, you know, a change in the vocal quality. And they're the first to raise the flag of like, hey, something's different, something's going on here. And so I'm always cluing in to, did they have vincristine? When was their last dose of vincristine? How many doses of vincristine have they had? We usually like to have ENT take a look to give us some good information about what the vocal folds are doing. You know, are they paralyzed? Are they um, weak? Is it one? Is it both? Where are they? You know, what position are they in? Um, And then we like to refer for um, an instrumental to guide us on what do we need to do with this patient to make it safe for them to continue to um, consume PO. Is, is this a conversation, Kristen, that you're involved with on the front end, or do the oncologists discuss these side effects like at, at the beginning when the family is trying to decide on the course of treatment? So, yes, that's the easiest answer. Um, <laughs> a lot of kids, uh, these parents are given so information yeah, when yeah. they're child you know, yeah. diagnosis. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that it's a huge conversation all of the time, but it is something that is presented as a potential outcome for anyone who receives vincristine. Vincristine is typically used as one of a group of chemotherapies to target the cancer. And so, and there's plenty of children who have no issues with vincristine at all. Peripheral neuropathy from vincristine, so issues with, you know, tingling in the hands and feet, that's a really, really common. The vocal cord issues are not as common. Um, and so, Yes, families are made aware and they can use that in their decision making, but it's not so common that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not the first thing that comes to mind when they know, okay, we're going to do this thing next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the the thing just from being a parent, just that's so frustrating is when people like, don't tell you this stuff ahead of time. So all of a sudden you're just like, where is this coming from? What is this? Is this something new? Is this what's going on? And then they're like, oh yeah, it's a side effect in the med. And it's like, why didn't anybody tell me that? You know, like, <laughs> so I'm not saying it would have maybe changed the course of treatment, but to just know, you know, be aware of these things on the back end, I think it's just so, can be so helpful. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think we do a lot of education and then a lot of re-education just because we flood them with so much information that yeah, you know, yeah. we may have told them and we just need to re-educate and help them inform, you know, help inform them for the decision that they need to make next. We kind of take it one step at a time. And that's a really good point because it's 
the other piece about vincristine induced peripheral neuropathy is that vocal cord dysfunction typically resolves within a couple of weeks. So two to six weeks, it's usually getting better unless it's a pretty severe case. Um, so, you know, we might be doing diet changes, but I'm always telling families, you know, this should be temporary. This is something we need to do in the interim. You know, we, we know that this is probably why this is happening. And here's the things we're going to do to keep your child safe now. And this is what we're going to do moving forward. And a lot of times ENT speech therapy and the physicians are having conversations about, okay, this is the information we have about what happened with this dose. What do we want to do about future doses? Are we going to maintain the same dosing? Are we going to reduce the dose? Was it severe enough that we need to remove chemotherapy, or excuse me, vincristine from the chemotherapy regimen altogether? So there's a lot of decision-making that happens around vincristine as well. Interesting. It is a really interesting yeah, like, it's something I knew nothing about before. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the things I, you know, I love collaboration and I'm so fortunate to work with such a great rehab team. But if I hear of a kid that I'm seeing for speech therapy, um, having trouble with foot drop or they're having neuropathic pain in their feet, I'm going, mm, they probably have been Christine. I need to pay attention because I need to know if there's any changes in their vocal quality. If mom's noticing oh yeah, he's coughing a little bit more, but it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's a big deal yeah. to me. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Kind of that collaboration and gathering information from multiple sources to kind of guide, you know, what decisions do we need to make together? Yeah. And I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Simply Thick. Now that Itzy allows you the option to use a thinner consistency, now Simply Thick does too. Simply Thick Easy Mix introduces the first slightly thick Itzy Level 1 individual packets in the U.S. All the same features you know and love about Simply Thick in easy-to-mix packets. For a free sample kit, check out www.simplythick.com forward slash SYP. That's www.simplythick.com forward slash SYP. Um, so that then Christine, um, causing vocal cord issues is something that you're most likely to see while the patient is on cancer treatment, but there are some things that we need to be aware of that can occur after cancer treatment. And I think that's really important for this audience to think about, um, when they're maybe not seeing patients as they're going through chemo and radiation, but have somebody coming back to school and they're on the caseload or go into the private practice or an outpatient hospital setting. So we know that cancer treatment can cause complications that aren't really evident until after treatment has ended. And these are called late effects. Um, there's some, there's a whole list of chronic late effects that a childhood cancer survivor um, can have, but it you know, includes things like growth problems and vision deficits or hypothyroidism. Um, it's a really long list, but one of the important ones for speech pathologists is cognitive late effects. Um, and these are really well documented in the literature it refers to problems with attention, processing speed, memory, executive function. Um, and of course, those things can then affect school performance or obtaining and keeping a job, um, socializing with others. And so, you know, how does this happen? I think uh, an easy example is, say we have a three-year-old who required radiation for a brain tumor and they go through radiation, they seem to be doing pretty well, you know, they're talking, they're eating, they're playing, they're doing all sorts of three-year-old things. But then they get to kindergarten and they start having trouble 
focusing and following directions and completing sequential tasks and problem solving. And this is likely a cognitive late effect from that radiation that they had when their brain was developing at three years old. A lot of times you can start to pick up on these things before school age, but it can become really evident at school age because we are asking them to do more structured tasks, um, participate in things that require a little bit higher level language skills. And so that's, you know, cognitive late effects can really be evident in that school age timeframe. So, you know, even if you don't work with a patient on treatment, this is something that we need to be thinking about and targeting after treatment um, in, the, in the childhood cancer survivor. Is this something, Kristen, that you like, are, are these like kind of scheduled, like routine follow-ups with, with kids, or is it just, you know, these are the things that could potentially happen down the road, you know, give us a call if they come back. I'm just curious how the you know, how that looks. Absolutely. So we do follow a protocol that allows us to follow up with these patients because they're coming back to our institution for scans and blood draws and things to look at other late effects um, and to make sure that their cancer is either controlled or they're doing well. So we do follow up with them pretty closely. If it's not possible for them to return to us, then we're doing a lot of educating to the providers in their home communities so that we can say, hey, we need to keep an eye on these things. Um, they might look great now and that's perfect. They might need treatment now. And this is what you know you might want to be focusing on. Um, and then just know down the road, these other things that we might be dealing with. So yeah, it's a really good idea to keep a close eye on childhood cancer survivors just because we know there's a whole host of things um, that we might be wanting to kind of intervene with later on, if not now. Yeah. That's a great question. Okay. I saved probably the most interesting thing to me for last thinking about, you know, pediatric oncology, um, maybe special considerations is what we want to call them. This is hands down the most fascinating part of my job. I feel like I'm hyping this up a little bit. So hopefully listeners are interested as well. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about posterior fossa syndrome. And you could hear a couple of different names. Some people will call it cerebellar mutism. Some people get cerebellar cognitive affective syndrome. Um, but for the purpose of today's conversation, we're going with posterior fossa syndrome. So this is a post-operative complication, um, usually after the resection of a tumor in the posterior fossa. So remember, that's the region of the brain near the brainstem and the cerebellum. And it's something that occurs most often after tumor resection of a brain tumor called medulloblastoma. It occurs a lot more often in children than in adults, but it has been documented in adults. So my adult oncology SLPs um, are probably familiar with this as well. Um, and so here's kind of what happens. The patient will have their brain tumor surgery and things seem to go well. And in the days following surgery, they present with neurological, motor, emotional, behavioral, and speech and swallowing changes. And the interesting thing is that these changes occur in the absence of any identifiable factors. So vitals are stable. Imaging is unchanged. Um, it's really a result of the injury of an injury during the tumor resection. And I'll leave the heavy neuro stuff about how this happens to the neuro people but it does have to do with some damage to um, some cortical tracts in the brain. So symptoms of posterior 
FASA syndrome include things like mood changes and ataxia, hypotonia, dysphagia. And then the big one, kind of like the hallmark characteristic is mutism or diminished speech. They don't have to be completely mute for them to be diagnosed with posterior FASA syndrome, but there's usually some loss of speech that they're experiencing following the resect. So presentation varies a little bit. Some people or some children will speak a few words after surgery and they're unable to speak later in the day or in the days following surgery. Some won't speak after surgery. They lose their ability to move their body on command, but they can generally maintain those reflexive movements. So um, a child will yawn and open their mouth, but if you say, open your mouth, they can't do it on command. Or the child can vocalize if they're crying or humming or singing, but they can't make that sound on purpose. So the humming and singing would really only occur as like a communication attempt. Like they're not actually trying to sing along to music. They might just try to make some kind of a communication attempt. Usually there's lots of articulatory groping when they're attempting to follow command. So I think it's really important for um, clinicians to understand that the receptive language skills of these children are usually higher than their expressive skills. Um, I always encourage people to be really cognizant about what we're saying in front of the child, um, what kind of conversations we're having. Just because they can't respond doesn't mean they can't hear and understand. And I imagine it could be very frustrating and scary um, to have, you know, doctors and therapists and mom and dad talking about you in front of you and you're, you're not able to, you know, ask any questions about what's going on. It could be really hard to recognize that their receptive language skills are higher than their expressive skills because they're unable to follow some of those commands and show you that they understand because of their motor apraxia. But you'll kind of start to come out as they regain some of those motor skills. They're like, oh, yes, like they get this. They know it. they're trying to do with asking them to do. It's just really do it right now. Um, usually the speech will start to return in, the, in a few weeks or a few months, but speech challenges usually persist for years after the surgery. Um, when speech begins to return, it's often marked by dysarthria. Voicing is usually really harsh, um, difficulty with loudness. Um, they typically have a rate and imprecise consonant production, imprecise vowels, um, really reduced breath support. A lot of times, some of my first goals are to establish some kind of a consistent yes or no response so they can participate in their care. Um, I'm working on breath coordination, following simple bodily command, and then we move towards making sounds. Um, a lot of times I'll start with a voiceless consonant like a P. Um, because that doesn't require them to coordinate their breath and their voicing, which can be really challenging to do all at once. So we might work on, okay, how do we coordinate, you know, our labial movements and our exhalation. And then it's really not uncommon for patients with posterior fossa syndrome to have dysphagia as well. It can occur in all stages of swallowing. Um, a lot of times we're seeing reduced an excursion of structures, difficulty managing oral secretions, um, a lot of impaired coordination in the oral and pharyngeal phases. And, you know, these, pa these patients require a lot of support from all rehab therapies, um, which is really, really nice for collaboration. So a lot of times I'm saying, hey, PT and OT, how do you help me get this patient in a position that's going to be good for us to work on feeding? 
or, hey, this is what we're doing for a yes, no response, um, or this is how we're communicating right now. Try to use these in your sessions. And there's a lot of cross collaboration so that we can really support these patients. Um, I love working with these patients. I think they are um, so resilient and they're so motivated and it's, it's a really great experience for me. I feel very blessed to be able to, you know, work with them during their recovery because it's a really, really tough thing, but it's, it's a really interesting um, syndrome as well. Do you need help with getting your medical director to agree to an instrumental? Want the latest information on how to appropriately assess your medically complex patient? Need to learn more about a particular aspect of your job while earning ASHA CEUs? The MedSLP Collective can help with that and so much more. Sign up today at www. .medslpcollective.com Do we have like a lot, like a lot is definitely not a good word to use here. Um, <laughs> different, you know, different treatment options, things like that, or is it more compensatory? Um, so it's, it's basically rehab. <laughs> so a lot of yeah. rehab is what they need. Uh, PTOT speech, just improving those skills, helping the brain to recover. It's a lot of it's apraxia based therapy. So kind of remapping how do we complete the commands that our brain is telling us to do. Our body is getting the, the message mixed up. What do we do in that case? In terms of, you know, medicinal treatments or anything like that, you know, there are some things that'll use um, certain well-known drugs that maybe can inhibit impulsivity or maybe an anxiety medication can help with um, emotional ability because I didn't speak to this too much, but a lot of these patients have these mood or behavioral changes, lots of excessive crying or excessive laughing. And it's not that they are necessarily very happy or very sad, but at a point in time, that's how they're communicating. And those emotional changes can persist long-term. So we usually get some pretty flat affects, um, which then can be, um, or can manifest as, you know, monotonous voice. And so we might be working on some of those things. So there are some different things that can kind of attack some of those smaller deficits, symptoms, but there's not really, you know, a one big, okay, this happened and now we're going to give you this and things are going to get better. It's, it's a lot of hard work on their part and a lot of work work with the rehab therapist. Cool. Thank you. So anyone who's interested in learning more about childhood cancer or the role of the speech pathologist in childhood cancer, um, just some really resources that are out there. There's, you know, some of your basic websites like the National Cancer Institute or World Health Organization. Um, St. Jude is powering a website called the Together website. And that's a really nice resource for um, patients and families, um, as well as people who maybe aren't as familiar with some of the terminology or some of the processes that occur in a childhood cancer patient's treatment journey. There's research in pediatrics is always very interesting. We get a lot of adult information, adult oncology information, and then we try to use it to kind of guide what we're doing in pediatrics. There's a, a nice paper in seminars in oncology nursing that I helped um, to write with some 
OTs and some PTs across the country that kind of gives a nice overview of what does it look like to treat cancer. Um, and so there's some resources like that as well. I'm hoping one day um, to actually write a course, <laughs> which I think would be really nice as a resource for people. Um, and there's even been conversations about maybe adding a little bit of content to the MedOSLP Collective. Yes, would love to have it. Yes. <laughs> um, that might be something that we're working on in the future as well, just to make this a little bit more accessible for people. I ended up starting a little Instagram earlier this year, just to kind of share some of the stuff that I'm talking about. And so they're kind of like little bites, little snippets of information about um, pediatric oncology as well. And, you know, what does an SLP do or what does an SLP need to know? Um, and then I kind of sprinkle in some things about, you know, interviewing or little, little tips that I've picked up along the way. Um, so I think, and I was looking online, finding some of those resources, reaching out to people that you know in the field. I am more than happy to chat with anybody um, who is interested in this field or who needs um, maybe a little bit of conversation about, you know, I, I've got this patient, let's problem solve through this or anything like that. I'm happy. I'm happy to help out. Um, I think, you know, we've got to support each other, especially for, you know, the benefit of these patients. So I'm definitely always here to do that. Yeah. Kristen, I, obviously you work at a cancer center hospital, but I'm wondering if, if, do you think there's more of a need for us, even just in general hospitals to deal with this specific population? Like, you know, I keep saying, I think it's more of a niche thing, but I think it really truly is. And just based on what you've said, I think there's so much more that we can do to help these kids. It's really interesting because, you know, it might not be something that you see frequently, but when you see it, these therapists are always trying to, you know, scramble to figure out what to do because they want to do the best patient. So I think my mission really is to just make information accessible so that if you have a patient like this on your caseload in the future, you can get some really solid information about what is this going to look like? What should I be doing? And I, I don't expect, you know, graduate programs to, you know, have, you know, courses or even complete talks. You know, we don't even get a lot of talk about like pediatric feeding. <laughs> so I don't expect the whole childhood cancer lecture, but just opening up the conversations of these are the kinds of settings that you can be in. Just more awareness of all the different little pockets, corners of our field. Um, I'm constantly amazed by what people are doing. Um, and I'm like, I have no clue how to do that or what that would look like. Um, so just keeping the conversation going and making sure people can access reliable information is what's really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you've really instilled upon in this conversation is just how important it is to really know our neuroanatomy and physiology. And I'm always curious, is that something that have you always been really interested in that? Did you feel like you were very solid in your neuro before taking on this role? Or is this something that once you realize the impact of childhood cancer and these different chemotherapies and different side effects that you were like, oh, crud, I really need to get my neuro up to speed? Yeah, I did a lot of on-the-job learning. Um, I think because a, a lot of these things I was seeing, I wasn't going to be taught anywhere else. So uh, what I think is important for people to kind of recognize, I think people think my job is really scary. Like I could never do that. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. You can totally learn this kind of information. There's, I mean, all jobs you have on the job learning, 
Dysarthria is dysarthria. Dysphagia is dysphagia. You need to know those foundations. What is, what is normal swallowing? What is disordered swallowing? And then we apply, right? We apply what's going on in the specific situation. So I apply um, the known effects of chemotherapy to consider, okay, what's going to happen with a patient who has dysphagia and is receiving chemotherapy. I apply what's going to happen after a tumor resection. And then we've got facial weakness because of a cranial nerve injury, right? Like we know the basics um, and we just sometimes have to do a little bit more work to understand how those basics fit within the bigger picture um, of the setting that we're in. So no, by no means do I think I'm an expert at any of this. I just have a little bit more experience in it. And every day I'm trying to learn more about neuroanatomy, biology, all of those types of things, because I just don't know that I could ever learn enough about it. I'm constantly, you know, always coming up with more information and better ways to do things. So I feel like I'm trying to adapt alongside that as well. Yeah. Thank you. I think that was so beautifully said. I like, I think so many people think, oh, you know, that girl just got all that knowledge. You know, that girl just had the best training in the world or that guy, you know, is a neuro genius, you know? So thank you for, for saying that because I think it's important for us to know that yes, you, you can learn as you go. And, and like you said, you learn, you, you apply what you know in this concept to this concept. And, and I think that was really well said. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you want it bad enough, you can learn it. I was our student. I had some great people who trained me in a lot of great things, but you know, I learned as I went and I'm still learning as I go. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for this Kristen. This was an excellent talk. Of course. I love chatting about it. I'm happy to keep the conversation going if anybody has any questions or I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it as well. Um, yes, it's, of course. It's, it's very important to me. And just one more thing. I, you know, everybody hears what I do and they say, oh, you know, is your job so sad? Like, I don't know how you do it. And I just want people to know that my job is so happy. Um, it's unbelievable how resilient these children are. They love rehab. They love coming back to play. Um, there's no ouchies in rehab, right? We're not doing yeah. any pokes or anything. <laughs> no, we are the stars of the show. Sometimes they, they love coming and yes, they're sick and, you know, there aren't great outcomes and it can be very, very sad, but it's also a really, really heartwarming environment. Um, and I just, I'm just to be able to serve this population. So thanks for letting me share about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. that was, yeah. So beautifully stated. So thank you again, Kristen. Of course. Thanks so much. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.